How about that? First Kings. It is really, really, really good to be back. It is good to be on the stage and to look at you. You are a beautiful church. I missed you all a lot. My family missed you all. <laughs> you don't have to clap. Thank you. <laughs> My family got a lot of rest. I got a lot of rest. We needed it bad. And we're thankful that this church offered us that. We're thankful that you guys gave us that opportunity to rest. Very thankful for all the kind words and the text messages and the hugs that we've gotten. Missed you guys a bunch. Really did. And I'm, I'm also thankful for our staff, our pastoral board, all the guest preachers that came in. Um, I don't know if you know this. I don't know why you would if you're not in some level of church leadership, but summers can be a booger. <laughs> it can be sticky. Um, typically in churches, especially smaller churches to medium-sized churches, the summers, um, they can grind down in momentum. Giving is typically really poor. Um, but by all accounts, it's probably one of the healthier summers we've had as a church. Um, our staff did a very good job of making the gears run cleanly, of serving you. Our pastors did a great job of shepherding and counseling and being good watchmen over this house. The guest preachers, some of them traveled a pretty good distance to be here, and they loved you, and I heard a lot of great things about how they had a good time being here. Legacy had a good summer, so thank you. Thank you also if you're investing and volunteering some of you, you lead in a living room. Some of you, you're hosting something in your living room, or you might be on one or multiple calendars to do something here, whether it's putting words up on a screen or watching a toddler spit on another toddler or something like You're on calendars. You're serving this church. Thank you. Thank you. I, that, that's also equally difficult in the summertime. We're very thankful. Thank you for loving your church. Just to let you know where we're going to go in the next few months, Sunday morning-wise, I'm real excited to start something in a few weeks in October. Um, probably will take all of October and November. We're going to walk through a chunk of the book of 1 Corinthians to take a special look at spiritual gifts. Okay? Um, and I know, I know some of you just got really nervous. All I did was say spiritual and gifts, right? Don't panic. and Trust me, it's going to be okay. Um, believe it or not, God is very excited to give us gifts. He is a happy gift giver. Um, he's encouraged to give you good gifts, and Paul tells this young church in Corinth that they should earnestly desire them. It doesn't really show us an option of a healthy church without good spiritual gifts in operation. So what I'd like to do is just take a look at that. Um, and I get it, right? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to spiritual gifts. Like, what do they look like? How can we have different lists of them in the New Testament, but none of them are really the same? Um, what does it look like when a spiritual gift is working? What does it look like when it is obviously not working? And what do we do about the person that is active in a gift and it's not working? How do we engage it as a church, right? I mean, there's just confusion. But then on top of the confusion is a little bit of a hesitancy because we've seen spiritual gifts abused somewhere else by other people, right? right? And I agree with Sam Storms when he says that most Christians in America, they operate on an 11th commandment as well, which is thou shalt not do what others do poorly, <laughs> And I get that. I was born again, my wife was born again into a beautiful church with beautiful people that would make mistakes with the gifts. And so whenever my theology started to change to what is more closely aligned to where it is right now, the very first thing I wanted to do was create space away from what I saw people drop and kick around. All right? I didn't want anything to do with it. So I understand the hesitancy more than probably most in the room. But my hope in this series is to address some of the confusion by looking at how Paul speaks to a church that is actually smaller than this church is. 
full of people that struggle very much like you might struggle. And I also have another hope, and that is that you learn how God has gifted you. You have gifts. God is excited with a smile on his face as he gives them to you to spend on others for your enjoyment, for his glory, for the good of the people around you. So this is going to be a very helpful series for us once we jump into it. For those of you who have not heard a teaching on spiritual gifts, you're probably not going to want to miss it. This is actually going to be the fourth time our church has traveled through them. Um, I think this will be the very first time we use the first the book of 1 Corinthians, to go verse by verse through it. Typically, we've been topical in how we've treated it. Legacy West is going to go through the same thing at the same time. This month, however, I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking at a few key lessons I learned while on sabbatical rest, just as I prayed, read, searched the Word, wore my journal out. Um, You know, one thing sabbaticals produce for pastors is time and space to listen to the Lord without the felt obligation and pressure to immediately lead other people. Um, There are very, very, very few rooms I would walk into where I was not the leader of that room or required to lead. And it changes the shape of how you sit at Jesus' feet a little bit, just to be honest. And so the sabbatical, if it does one thing, it gives me time. It just gives me time to receive. And God did focus on a few key themes for me. And I wanted to do the best I could to maybe speak out of an overflow as we get ready for October to come. So, you know, my hope is that you learn a little bit maybe from some of the things that the Lord was very kind and good to me in teaching me. For instance, one of the things I needed badly entering this time of rest and recalibration, I needed wisdom. Bad. I just needed wisdom. Wisdom on how to better serve you. I need wisdom on how to better serve this city. I need wisdom on how to build leaders who will build leaders, whether that's in the marketplace, the home, the cul-de-sac, the classroom. I, I, I need wisdom on how to build leaders who won't burn out. And I need to be able to have the wisdom to do that without burning out myself. I need a wisdom on how to innovate creatively. We live in a, a city in a century that is flexing quickly. It shifts, and it's important for the church to become more creative and innovative I need wisdom on where to spend courage correctly, when to take risks. I need wisdom for that. Wisdom on how to process loss as well, both publicly and privately. I just need wisdom. (laughs) There's a lot of it. I think you do too, though, right? I mean, doesn't everybody in this room need wisdom? I mean, some of you, you came in here with some oppressive thing, something that's providing a problem for you. You don't know how to navigate it. It might be down the road. It might be in your lap right now, but you're there. Maybe you feel alone, underprepared, intimidated, fearful, anxious, even depressed. It's because there's a lot on the line and you don't know what to do. You have no clue what you're doing, right? You need wisdom. Let me just encourage you if that's you. When you have a storm in front of you or all on top of you and you don't know how to navigate it, that pain that you're feeling, that discomfort is a gift of sorts. It's a place that God is giving you and inviting you into a closer walk with him as you ask him and search him for wisdom. He's happy to put us in those places, believe it or not. It reinforces a dependence and a trust and a fascination with him. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before we do, jump into 1 Kings chapter 3. I spent about, I don't know, 80% of my Sabbath in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, 
They've always been my favorite books in the Bible. Even as a brand new Christian, I could take you to places at the University of Texas Permian Basin where I, where I became a Christian. I could take you to places on that campus where I was skipping classes to read about David. My grades, no joke, they literally dropped my senior year because of First and Second Samuel. <laughs> Even my pastor was like, yo, listen, we get it. <laughs> you, need to get, you need to find a biochemistry book. You need to crack that thing open because your, your grades are in bad shape. But this summer, I wanted to go back through old territory, familiar territory, and I wanted to pay attention to kings, both good and bad kings, and how they engaged wisdom, okay? 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to go to verse 7. Let me just back it up to verse 5 if you have it. If you don't have that on the screen, that's totally fine. Don't sweat it. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? You know, interesting to me that a thousand years after this dream would happen, another young king would come to the very same place and inaugurate a new kingdom full of more people, people that can't be numbered, people that can't be counted. And this king also would want to seek the Father's glory. And he wouldn't just ask for wisdom. He would be wisdom himself. Your Bible is cool, by the way. When you read First and Second Samuel, it's telling you about Jesus. Jesus is the hero of First and Second Chronicles and Second Kings. We're supposed to see just a, a, a harbinger of a better king to come. Okay? I love the Bible. Here's some context about this passage, though, this immediate moment. It's, it's important for you to know Solomon is without a father, right? David is dead. And if you've lost a father, I've lost a father too early. And when you hit your 30s and your 40s and your 50s, man, there's just something about not having that wise voice. When you start slamming into walls where you need wisdom and it's not there, and that's where he's at. Oh, Dad. And he's in a weird little world where everyone's looking to get ahead. A lot of opportunists will be found in the palace when kings change shape, right? I mean, this is, this is a time where trusting the wrong people could get you killed, and just before this dream happened, he had kind of gotten rid of some old influences and some old advisors and recruited some new ones. I mean, it's different people sitting around the table now than who were sitting around. In fact, some of the people he got rid of were advising his own father. It's a confusing time, right? I mean, alliances come and go just like that. It's like high school or middle school, right? Your best friends on Tuesday, they're the ones spreading rumors about you on Wednesday, right? That's the way it was there. You didn't know who you could count on. Not only was there turbulence inside the palace, but outside, because, and this is totally something that would be intuitive, anytime there was a change in shift from king to king, other kingdoms would look at that and say, now's a good time to go ahead and strike. They're on their heels. No one really knows who's driving the bus. 
They're, trying, they're, they're bickering for spots right now. Now's the time to go ahead and send an army. They're unstable. And Israel's big at this point. David had just spent a few decades doing nothing but enlarging and conquering, enlarging and conquering. It's going to be rare to find Israel in this big of a stage in its history. I mean, their borders are everywhere, right? This is a vulnerable time when this dream happened. Solomon is vulnerable, to use any word. And here's the kicker. Not only that, give or take a year, he's 20 years old. (laughs) He's a sophomore in college. Let that sit for a minute. Today, he wouldn't even be able to drink whiskey, right? And he has power and control over more people and over more wealth than this kingdom has ever seen. That's amazing to me. I mean, if you just keep reading the story of Solomon and how he's building pieces and components to the temple in his house, you get the feeling that they just have more wealth than they even know what to do with. You'll read passages that say, and it was made out of ivory, right? But then they dipped it in gold. And then when I read that, I think, well, then you don't even know it's ivory anymore, right? It's kind of weird. But then when it's done, they just kind of look at it and say, yeah, yeah, not enough gold. Let's dip it in gold again. And then they dip it in gold again and then wrap it with more gold and put ivory underneath it and things like that. And you read it and you think, that's a lot of wealth. That's where this guy is. That's where he is. Now, this might seem really far from your Tuesday morning, but this could not be more relevant for you today. Because here's the recipe of what's going on in Solomon's gut in the middle of this dream. He's scared. There's pressure. There's a lot at stake. There's no margin for error. No clue what to do. Feels alone, fearful, anxious. So God shows up in a dream and says, hey, you've got the winning lottery ticket. What can I give you? And he asks for an understanding mind, wisdom. I get it now. I didn't when I first became a Christian. I thought, what a moron. He could have said, I want all the money in the world. And he says he wants an understanding mind. (laughs) Get a book, right? right? But he says, I want wisdom, and God gives it to him. I get it now. He says, I don't even know how to go out or come in. That might be new phraseology. If you've not heard that before, it actually kind of reaches back. You can find it in Numbers as well. You'll catch Moses praying at the end of his leadership of the, of the nation of Israel, and right before Joshua takes it. And what Moses asks of the Lord is that you would, set, you would appoint a man who would lead Israel out and lead them back in, who would go out before the people and come back in. It's the stuff that leaders do. And Solomon says, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, he's not not saying he doesn't know how to use a door or act like a king. He knows where the throne's at. He has knowledge. He knows how to run a staff meeting. He watched his dad. But he's asking for something else. It's not knowledge he's hunting, it's wisdom. It's not knowledge he's hunting, it's wisdom. They're not the same thing. They might touch occasionally, they're not the same thing. You know, wisdom is, and I'm going to try to paint it with a couple different brushes. It's actually a concept that you could spend a year or two or three on. But it is the ability to know not just things, that would be knowledge. It's not just the ability to know things, but to know right from wrong, right? To have good judgment, discernment over what the Bible will call folly. It's not just knowledge, but it's the application of knowledge for God's glory, right? And Solomon knows a couple things. He knows he can't trust his gut. Can't do that. And even with all the competing voices and influences around him, he still has to apply that knowledge. 
right? You see, here's some truth. And you know this probably by now, but what wisdom is not just knowing a bunch of things. We've done something to that word. We've devalued a little bit so that whenever we see somebody that's really smart, we, we do what? We say that's a wise person, right? That's why they're a wise person because they know a lot. So we take things like college professors or scholars who have a lot of certificates, a lot of degrees. They have libraries that are amazing, and we say that is a wise person. Let me tell you, it might be smart, but that does not mean that they're wise. I've met some very, very, very wise and highly uneducated people, right? And I've met some very smart fools, <laughs> and you have too. You have too. Wisdom is something else, too. It's seeing and it's trusting the character of God. It's savoring the character of God. It's discerning the very face, the nature of who he is. Proverbs 9 does a very good job of this. When this young king would grow up and write this, and he would say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what we're after today. And it does not mean the, the, the one who is spooked out by God or creeped out by God. I, I think you probably know that. It's not what the fear of the Lord is. It's the ability to see and weigh the very grandeur of God to discern his nature. It is the wise person when surrounded by all the voices in the world, all the influences, and there's a lot, and they compete, don't they? Not all foolish things look foolish. When the world says, here, here's a good idea, it doesn't always, we don't see it a mile away as something foolish. Sometimes we say, oh no, that looks wise. That looks wise for me. But the wise person, when they're surrounded by all of those very real temptations, they look at them through the face and the nature and the character of God. Now, here's something that might be new for some of you, but it's going to be very important for all of you. Wisdom only comes from the hand of God as a gift. You're not making it up inside. You cannot self-generate wisdom. Wisdom is not a matter of a long night's sleep and then all the data in front of you. That's what it feels like, right? Like, if I could just get all of the information I need and get a good night's sleep and get everyone off my back, I could probably make a wise decision. No, you can't. You can't save yourself. You can't self-generate wisdom. It's just not wisdom at that point. Right? I'll give you a, an extreme example of this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 8. You don't have to turn there. Stay where you're at. It says this. This is Paul to the young church. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Right? And to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, what this is talking about is a supernatural word of wisdom, which is a gift from God, and I'm looking forward to talking about this in a month or so and how it's helpful for a church because there are men and women in this room who have it, and it is helpful. I've been served greatly by it, right? I'm not necessarily sure. I have that gift active all the time, but I know enough to notice around myself with people that do. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But what I want you to see in this passage is that it is from God's hand through God's Spirit. It's not something that he notices in you and then just kind of helps you with, right? We're all called to desire this wisdom. There are plenty of people in your Bible, plenty in the world who operate without the wisdom of God. They lean on what the Bible says, their own understanding. They're distrusting God. They're trusting themselves. And this is what the Bible calls that, foolishness, folly. Folly is where we distrust God and trust ourselves instead. And we can all be foolish. We can all be foolish. 
I'm going to go back to Solomon for a moment. He knew better than to trust his gut. That's hard, isn't it, to not trust your gut? I mean, we, we inherit this. We kind of inhale it from our culture to just shoot from the gut. Trust your gut. Trust your inside person. What are you feeling? Some, some people call it feelism, right? He knew better to do that. He knew he could not do that. And, and when we, this, is, this is what's crazy about Solomon's story. Whenever we read about this 20-year-old interacting with the Lord on this level, what do we immediately think? I think it. That's a wise thing to ask for. Wisdom. It's wise of him to ask for wisdom. Even that wisdom he had to ask for that was given him by God. He wasn't, it wasn't like God found wisdom in him and said, that was a good choice. I'll give you wisdom. He gave him the wisdom to even ask for that. Martin Luther says it this way on some different topic. He says, the love of God does not first discover but creates what is pleasing to it. Does not discover but first creates what is pleasing to it. In other words, God doesn't just find wisdom in us. He creates wisdom and gives it to us as we look to him and trust him. We cannot look to ourselves. And this should make sense to you, right? That God provides even the means for us to please him. He doesn't just give us opportunities to be pleasing to him. He gives us the means to be pleasing to him. This is why we read Philippians 2 the way that we do. Whenever it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, it sounds like I'm getting off on a nerd tangent right now, being a little bit of a theological nerd. The reason I'm doing this is because if you are here today and you find yourself in a pretzel, you can't navigate and you feel the pain of it, right? And you feel like, I feel like I need to be I don't know, fasting, asking the Lord for wisdom, depending, waiting upon the Lord for wisdom. You need to know that God has you in that place. You could be thankful. You could celebrate in this moment. You're right where you need to be. It's by design. He's kind to you in drawing you to him. That's a kindness of God. He's thoughtful for you. He's considerate of you to put you in that place. Don't take that for granted. Thank him. Thank him. No, like Solomon, as I said earlier, I don't know how to go out or come in. I feel like this pretty much every day. I don't know what I'm doing, okay? I'm not being falsely humble either. I know things. I have knowledge. I, too, can run a staff meeting. I can do things. I know how to get from A to B, but I need wisdom. I need wisdom. I don't have very many easy decisions. Most of them are difficult. None of them are made in a vacuum, right? I mean, when you make decisions, you're making them through things called migraines and temper tantrums and pressure at work and depression and things like that. No one makes a decision in a vacuum. In fact, many of the decisions that you're having to make right now, does it not feel like you're choosing between the lesser of two evils? Right? Feels like that. And that's why you need wisdom. By the way, that little idiom, the lesser of two evils, that comes from Homer's Odyssey. If you read that, you have Homer who has to choose between two sea monsters one, he knows for a fact he'll lose six semen. The second one, he could lose everybody. The, the point of that part of that epic poem is that there's no good outcomes. He is in between what we call today a rock and a hard place. Solomon gets that. Some of you do too, right? Some of you do too. You're in the shoes of Homer and Solomon. What are those sea monsters for you, by the way, that are demanding wisdom from you right now that you just don't have? You don't know how to go out. You don't know how to come in. You don't know what you're doing. You know enough to know that, right? What is that? Is it work? Family? Money? What city you live in? What church you go to? What is it? What is it? Maybe you're stalled out, and you just need someone to take the pain away. 
You don't even care who tells you what to do. You just need someone to tell you what to do. God, man, Beyonce, The View, doesn't matter. Instagram, I'll take it. I just need someone to give me an answer and take this problem away. Here's the temptation for us, right? The temptation for us is when we find ourselves flanked by sea monsters and we don't know how to navigate, we're caught between a literal rock and a hard place. Sometimes it's not the wisdom in the face of God that we want. It's just an answer. We just want the problem gone. It's not intimacy with the Lord. It's just the problem gone, right? One of the things that this church, the pat, your pastors, um, are encouraged to let me do is to work with sick leaders, right? Some of you know, I don't even know if you know this, but three months ago, my book got published. Super excited about that. I think it sold nine copies so far. <laughs> but one of the things I love to do is work with sick pastors. Um, and some of them are, are, are not so sick. They just need some help. They need to debug why they do some of the things the way they do it and calendar work, diet work, sleep, stuff like that. Some of them are really blasted. And they just, they need help. They just want the problem to go away. And I always ask them this question. Do you need me to be a coach or a consultant right now? Those are two different things. A coach is from the sidelines. I'm able to walk alongside them and and help them self-discover, right? They're the ones discovering everything. I'm just kind of nudging them and helping. A consultant says, this is what you do now. This is what I would do if I was in your shoes. We remove the problem. And they're not the same thing. A lot of times when you and I, when we find ourselves in places where we need wisdom, we want a consultant. Tell us what to do. And a lot of times that consultant's not God. Not at all. One of the reasons we're fine listening to all the various voices is because we don't trust God. Either we think his voice will come, but probably not. We're not sure we're going to like whatever he says. We definitely don't want to wait for the time it might take to get there. We need something faster. We have a firm distrust of God inside of all of us. All of us. And just know that's an ancient sin. It reaches all the way back to the garden when Adam did what? Did not trust God with the knowledge of good and evil. He wanted to self-generate that insight and be a God himself. He wanted to save self. So we won't ask We won't pursue. A lot of times we'll move with our gut. We'll call it wisdom. We'll Christianize it in some way. But sometimes we'll just look for other people that are smart. And we'll ask them what they think or people that are easy to talk to. We just want a consultant. Now hear me. God does, in fact, tell us to collect wise advisors around us. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But he's not saying do that instead of call out for wisdom. (laughs) It's not one or the other. Right? Some of you, you walked in here today with decisions that are just crippling and you don't know what to do. And one of the reasons you don't know what to do is because you haven't even asked God. Let's be honest. Or maybe you asked, but it was like really quick that one time back in the day. Maybe you did it for a week. Maybe you just got tired of waiting, right? Which don't trust. So when you do ask for wisdom, there's doubt, hesitance in there. We believe that God will give us wisdom, but not really. I mean, and and this is really what James is talking about. Look in your Bible at James if you have a chance to turn to it. If you're fast, you could get there. If not, we'll put it up on the screen. James, this will be in chapter 1. I'm reading verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. See, so where, how are we getting wisdom? We're not making it up ourselves. He's giving it to us. This is a gift. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. What James is saying is you have to distrust yourself and trust God. If you distrust yourself and you distrust God, then that's just instability. It's instability, right? Let me just say that God, in his goodness, disarms us from ourselves. He will not allow us to be saviors. That's why he is always carrying us into places that are too big for us, problems that are just too difficult for us. I mean, I know what you've heard. I know what you've heard. I've heard the same stuff. He does, however, give you more than you can handle. He's an artisan at it. And I think he does it a lot of times with a big smile on his face. He gives you more than you can handle. Okay, but just not even on my notes. Think about that statement. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. What does that even insinuate? It means you've got it. Here's the shovel. Is that a hole you're in? You could dig yourself out. You don't even need God. Because God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Oh my gosh, we're at the brink of death. We, we can't handle death, can we? He handled that. God always brings us to places where we have no choice but to depend on him. No point but to trust on him. All the time he does this. Listen, I got this, this on my office wall. It's not, uh, I say it to myself almost every day. It's not unique to me. I think Paul Miller in one of his books, he has it. And he imagines the Lord speaking to him. I put it in first person. You could put your name in. Luke, I don't want you to rely on your own strengths and abilities and plans, but to distrust them and to distrust yourself. And to trust me and no one and nothing else, as long as you rely entirely on yourself, you are bound to come to grief. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable just in me reading it, because it sounds weird to not trust yourself. We've been raised to trust the old gut. It sounds odd to revolt so much on the trust that we put in ourselves. But just think about the gospel narrative for a moment. Is not the beginning of the gospel story for you and me the fact that we cannot save ourselves? The fact that we can't trust ourselves for wisdom? The fact that we're broken and we have a ferocious need, and just an insane need? That's the beginning of the gospel, our inability and our big need, right? I mean, let's just think just for a moment. You could do this in two seconds. The, our best attempts to manufacture our own wisdom according to the Old Testament First of all, you don't even get three chapters in, right? Not much of a start. You have a broken garden because we trusted ourselves, our own wisdom. You get a few chapters later, we built a tower to the heavens in the Tower of Babel. You get to the story of Noah and Abraham, Jacob, Moses. You get to these patriarchs. <laughs> I get it. They have, they have Polaroids of impressiveness, right? But let's just, for the most of their life, they're doing foolish things. In fact, I think the last series we did, looking at the life of Abraham, we could have easily named it Dumb Stuff Abraham Did. I know we had another flashy, politically correct name for it to really make you feel warm, but that's really all we talked about. Because look how God worked with his mistakes. And we have Jesus, and we have the church, and we have God's glory. <laughs> but man, that guy was, he did some stupid stuff, right? That's the best we have. You go a little further, we, we have judges, not all of them super impressive if you haven't read the book. You could stop at Samson if you don't believe, right? Not super impressive when it comes to the wisdom category. In fact, we were so not wise, we said judges aren't good enough. We need to be like everyone else. We need kings now, which was unwise. Then we get Saul, who proves the point by resourcing a witch. 
That's folly, okay? And then David comes along, who was really our best shot at the time, a guy who was after God's own heart, but then he was also an adulterer, a murderer, and then he took a census. This is the Old Testament, folks. It's a collection of stories of what will happen when we trust in ourselves and manufacture our own insight rather than depend on the Lord, wait on the Lord, seek wisdom from the Lord. And it all climaxes in this moment where the best of the Jews and the best of the Romans in their own wisdom puts the Son of Man up on a cross. That's the best we could do with our wisdom. Break the garden and then we break Jesus. Our distrust of God leads us to the worst version of ourselves. The worst. And yet, the gospel story, it visits such folly with wisdom. God earns our trust, not by sending some real wise things with an angel, but he comes himself, and he is wisdom himself. He answers our deepest confusion, and he shows us what God really looks like. That's how he handles us. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. If you can turn there fast enough. If not, again, that will be up on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to be in verse 20. I'm just going to read it for a second. This is Paul speaking to a pretty stubborn church at this moment. And he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, here it is, this is how he names Jesus, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is a person. So when you read the New Testament and you see Jesus walking and talking and laughing and embracing people who are foolish in the midst of their folly, whenever you see Jesus doing this, you actually see the full character of God on display. You see it. He is wisdom. You see the nature and the nuance, the distinctiveness, the weight and the glory of God in action. Colossians repeats it by saying he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the answer to our folly. That's good news if you're in here and you've been foolish, right? It's good news for me. Jesus is a gift. He is our wisdom. I'm going to apply a little bit of this truth before we get out of here because we want to really bolt it down. How do we get wisdom? I will say this just as a few points to maybe help put some legs to this. Don't assume it's just going to come. Don't assume. You have to hunt it down. Oftentimes, I mean, well, I'll just say sometimes God will give you wisdom and you didn't ask for it. You didn't even look for it. He's just good. He's just really sweet and thoughtful. He's like, here, you don't know what you're doing? Boom. And all of a sudden, something becomes incredibly clear. And you have this feeling that it came from outside of you, right? If you've ever had these moments, it's not like you thought, man, that college degree, paying off, right? No one does that. You always have that feeling like, man, it's almost like God just gave me that, right? It's because he did. did. But you can't assume that he's just going to give it to you. You have to look for it. Search it out. Sam Storm says this. He says, we assume falsely that God will give us apart from prayer what he has promised to give us only in response to prayer. 
I agree. And so does Solomon. Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 7. He says, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. Don't assume it's just going to come. Don't do that. Hunt it down. Some of you, you're going to find yourself in some very difficult seasons. You probably need to be fasting and waiting for it, right? I'd love to preach on that someday, or at least teach a class on that. Fasting. Seek it out. Hunt it down as if it was the most wealthy thing our, our planet would have to offer you. Another point. Celebrate that if you see the need, God has brought you to this place, and he's eager to gift you with a view of himself. In other words, it's by no mistake that you are between some sea monsters right now. The problem isn't that you don't have enough knowledge. It's not you. you. It's not a problem like that. God is inviting you to trust in him more than you did yesterday. Right? Another point. Wait and ask for endurance. Ask for endurance. Right? The world is going to try to fill that gap with insight. And the world's going to try to do it quickly. Foolish ears listen quickly. Right? Sometimes you're going to have to wait for God to show you a piece of himself and give you wisdom and guidance. Another point is, is you're going to want to collect counselors around you who have a history of being wise. Let me give you some caution here. For instance, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't resource your bestie from high school or college who is on their fourth marriage. Don't do that right? I know it's easy to talk to them. I know they get you, okay? They're not going to give you any wisdom, though, right? They're not going to give you any wisdom. If you need wisdom about a career situation, don't resource people who have made money their God, also not wise. If you need help and wisdom with how you raise your kids, don't ask parents who have made their kids an idol in their life, This is the trap we get into when it comes to collecting resource and wisdom around us. What we do is we default to people that are easy to talk to, right? They're so easy. They get me. They're so easy to talk to. They actually finish my sentence. And there is a value in that. I get it. That's why friendship is is good and it's valuable. It does not ensure that what you're going to get back is valuable. Yes, it's easy to tell them your story. You need people that will tell you God's story. I see a lot of big foul balls tipped off into the crowd. And then whenever I talk to the person, what they'll usually say is, I got wisdom from some, and it's usually some person that I've never even heard of before. They're in worse shape than the person that needed wisdom. But they were just easy to talk to and they were available. All right, I can't say anything more on that. I mean, I can say more on that, but I cannot say more on that. You know what I mean? Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to put a bow on this and we're going to move into worship But before we do, I just want to introduce, for those of you, and and because I've been gone for so long, I don't know who is new and who is not, so you might have heard this before, but we do offer communion for the church. Listen, you don't even have to be a member or a partner of this church, but if you are a Christian and you call yourself a son or a daughter of the king, we invite you to take the communion elements with us. If you're not, and maybe you're just a, a skeptic or you're searching or you're just checking this out, we're super excited that you're here and we're open if you have any questions. But what I want you to think about in this time right now is the person of Christ and who he is to you. The person of Christ and who he is to you.
Take this moment to think of that. But for those of you that do take communion, you're celebrating God's answer to your folly. Consider that. Wisdom himself has come among you to slay a worse sea monster than what faces you today. He is good. He is good. And there's room for us to repent for listening to foolish people, for not asking the Lord, for not trusting the Lord, for not waiting. There's lots for us to repent. All the bad mistakes we've made, things that we would call folly, there's lots to repent for. But he shows how sweet and gentle he is with us, even in the middle of our folly, how good he is to us. If you're confused, just know that it's not juice and bread. It's emblematic. I mean, it is juice and bread, but it's emblematic of blood and body. It's a picture for us. And then there's room to petition the Lord. Let me just read this over you as we go out. Solomon. I just want you to remember a young man. I don't know how old he was when he wrote this. could probably figure it out. But he says, just if you call out for insight, I want you to just think about whatever the issue is you have right now where you need wisdom. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and seek for it, as, or search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. So petition the Lord for wisdom and then celebrate what God has done for you and the fact that you're in the place that you're in. You're in the place you're in because he loves you. He's drawing you closer. And that's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this beautiful church, and I thank you that we all have an assortment of areas that we need wisdom in. I need a lot of wisdom. I don't know how to go out and come in, and I'm not so sure it's awesome that we know everything about going out and coming in. But Lord, to be kept in a place where we trust you or we just become fools. So Lord, help us. Help us lean on you. Lord, I pray that you teach us as a church to depend on you for wisdom and then how to labor for it and wait for it and savor it. Even the uncomfortable place of not knowing what to do and waiting for your wisdom, even that place of being invited to connect with you and commune with you deeper. Lord, you are so good. You didn't even leave folly. You you addressed even that with wisdom. You came as wisdom. And Lord, you saw the wisest thing possible as the cross in the empty tomb. And so here we sit as a church. We pray. We take communion as the songs roll on. We write checks. We high-five each other. We eat lunch together. We serve each other. We are the church by the power of what you saw to be the wisest thing as an answer to our most foolish actions. Lord, you are so good to us. And the fact, just the thought that you would give us wisdom. (laughs) Just fools. We're grasping in the dark, and yet you would just visit us out of love, out of joy, and give us good things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray for those in this room that are struggling. Maybe it's not just with wise living, but it's some serious decisions that need to be made, maybe down the road, maybe now, where you need wisdom. Lord, that you would give them 
wisdom. That you do so in such a way and with such a timing that draws them close. And Lord, that even the object, our goal of those sticky situations is not just the problem to go away, but to have our hearts fixed on you. Lord, even the ability to come out of the other side and say, I'm glad I went through that. I'm glad that was sticky. I'm glad those sea monsters were there because (laughs) I came out of that with a closer appreciation. I see the face of Christ much more clearly. Those of us in this room that have a difficult time collecting wise people around them, maybe they're new to the city, maybe they're not in community, Lord, that you would show them men and women who are wise, that they could collect voices. They might not be the easiest people to talk to. They might not even know how much they can trust them, but that they could collect wisdom because you say that's a good thing. You say that's a wise thing. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that are far from you. Lord, that they are still living in what maybe even they themselves would call foolishness. They've seen the effects of their foolishness. They've seen the effects of folly as it rips their life apart. Lord, that you would break into their life and you would show them not just that you're wise, but that you're loving and you're kind and you carry grace and you change people. You change lives. Lord, we thank you. You're so good and you're so kind and we're so thankful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.